You're listening to the Christian Civics Podcast, exploring how the gospel empowers us to think, speak, and act differently in the public square. I'm your host, Rick Barry, the co-founder and executive director of the Center for Christian Civics. And let me say right off the bat that I'm sorry. If you're listening to this at the time that it's released, and if you're listening to it because you care about faith and public life in the U.S., chances are the last few days have been really tough. Chances are the last few weeks have been really tough. I'm sorry, and I hope that you have an opportunity to find rest. Two days ago, at the time that I'm recording this, a mob of rioters, seditionists, and zealots stormed the U.S. Capitol building in an attempt to halt the certification of the presidential election votes. They were goaded on by months of uninformed rumors on social media and bad faith lies from select media outlets and opportunistic political figures who thought that they could foment anger for the sake of bolstering their own career. Several of them died, including one seditionist who was shot by Capitol Police, another who fired their own weapon into themselves, and another who apparently died of a heart attack. A lot of other ones were injured, and at least one Capitol Police officer was shot and killed. The images have been circulating on the internet, still photos and video, and they are so, so disappointing and so upsetting and so exhausting. To make matters a little worse, a lot of these photos show these domestic terrorists combining Christian iconography with a politician's flag, which should lead any Christian to lament the state of witness in the public square in the U.S. But I'm not here to opine or moralize about that tonight. The Christian Civics Executive Board has released a statement on social media, and if you want to know a little more about where our organization stands after all of this, you can read that. My real concern tonight is, how do we live and how do we care for ourselves and others in the immediate aftermath of traumatic, spectacular violence? And my guest tonight is Pastor Chuck Garriott. If you've been following us for a while, you're probably familiar with him. He's a friend and a friend of Christian Civics. He's the founder and director of Ministry to State, which provides for the spiritual needs of government staffers. He's someone who really does approach his work with government staffers, not just as a, as a pastor first, but as a pastor exclusively. And I really respect his approach to his work. Before moving to D.C., Pastor Garriott led a church in Oklahoma City. And in 1995, He had to provide pastoral care to a church in a city that had just suffered a horrific terrorist attack. The Oklahoma City bombing was the biggest biggest terrorist attack in U.S. history at the time, and it remained so until September 11th. And in a moment when so many ministry leaders need to figure out how to provide care for people who are sharing a for people who may not know how to react to a major violent news story that's still unfolding and still 
being understood and investigated, I really wanted to hear more about what it was like for Chuck to live through and pastor through the aftermath of the Oklahoma City attack. So Pastor Gary made time to join me late at night, kind of last minute, the day after the Capitol attack. And I'm really grateful that he was able to do that. Let's cut to my conversation with him now, and then we'll reconvene for prayer. I had gone down through Oklahoma City that morning to drop my kids off uh, a school. They, they, they schooled at a place on the south uh, east side of town, and we lived on the northwest side of town, and it was a normal trek to get them there and come back. And I had gone through the city about 8.30 in the morning, went home, and I was preparing for my sermon that morning. And so I had arrived at my home again around 8.30, but at 9 o'clock I heard this enormous explosion. And we lived about mm, 10 miles away from the Murrah building where the bomb was set off. And it was just an enormous explosion. And being that far away, it was still so incredibly loud And the impact was such that I went to the floor, thinking that it was something that was much closer to me. And of course, immediately you're trying to discern what had taken place. And I ran outside and thinking there, you know, was it was it a plane crash? Was it some big uh, gas line that had exploded? You just didn't know. And I couldn't really see anything at that point. And the city is in shock, and no one really knows exactly what happened. I would say it probably took maybe a day or so before we began to hear this was not like a gas explosion, but this was actually the work of a terrorist. And at the time, the Oklahoma City bombing was the largest terrorist act that we had experienced as a country. You went through that as a city, as a community. And the first thing that you think of as a pastor is, how do you treat this? How do you respond to something that you don't really know much about. But what you do know is that that there's been this enormous amount of destruction. Lives have been taken. We don't know the extent. And you just know that uh, it's just a huge mess. And so the first thing that we did as a, as a le- as leadership in terms of the church was to pray. You put a message out to your congregation and said, tonight we must gather and we must pray. And we must seek the Lord in terms of what has happened. And I think that was probably one of the uh, best decisions that the leadership of the church could make at the time was to humbly go before the Lord and say, Lord, we don't know, we don't know a lot of answers here. But what we do know is that there, there are people who have died and, and I don't want to go through all the details, but there were a number of our, a number of our people who were uh, in the, the downtown area at the time and were involved in carrying out dead babies that had died in the nursery in the building, people who were in uh, these other buildings, not the Murrah building, but other buildings where they were sitting there uh, having their morning coffee. And next thing, the large panes of glass that they were looking out were exploding and l- literally ripping their their face. And it was just an enormous 
a time of pain and, and suffering. You knew those things had taken place, but again, you just didn't know the extent of of the damage, and you didn't know necessarily what the reason was. But you did know that you had a lot of people who were confused uh, in your congregation, people who had witnessed in varying degrees what had taken place, and it was a time to humbly go before God and say, Lord, we need your help. So I would say that I think any of us would do the same thing. We would just naturally find ourselves on our knees and going before God. And of course, we were one of, of hundreds or thousands of congregations in Oklahoma City and in the state that knew that this was a time to pray. And when you got together that first night, what were you expecting people to want or need? And what were you surprised to either learn about their needs or see happen or see develop through praying together that night? You know, I can't remember. I don't remember now all the details of that first night in terms of what were the scriptures that were accented. There was certainly reading of scripture and uh, prayer. But again, you have a congregation, people who are just in shock. And I think that it would be fair to say that, at least at that point in time, my experience working in that type of an environment was fairly limited. Probably my time in South Africa before the end of apartheid, which was a country at the time we were there that was going through an enormous amount of turmoil and loss of life and destruction that maybe in some ways that you might say that prepared me in a, in a uh, limited way for what we were experiencing here. But I, I felt as a pastor that this was not a time to have commentary on what had happened or what didn't happen and where were, where was our authorities and why couldn't they prevent this or why didn't they know it was coming or what was happening with the federal government. And, you know, again, your people are in shock. And so they don't need that. They don't need to rehearse those kinds of things. What they need is an opportunity to corporately, and I think that's the important part here. We could have just sent out a note and said, by the way, why don't you spend some time as a family in prayer after dinner? But we believe that corporately you need to bring people together. You need to allow, allow them an opportunity to, in essence, grieve and experience shock and the questions corporately. And that's what that meeting was. And I think that was an important part that people could, could in essence, encourage one another, could minister to one another. And by bringing them together for that prayer time, that enabled them to experience that. We rehearse gratitude. We rehearse Thanksgiving. We rehearse confession and repentance and celebration every week at church, but we only engage in lamentation when it's urgent in the U.S., usually in most church communities. We don't have that skill built up. It's not a muscle we've worked out or stretched. We stretch a lot of the other muscles of the Christian life, but not lamentation. Did your experience after the bombing, did that change some of the ways that you practiced the faith as a community? Did lamentation become part of your liturgy of life? And if so, how? Because I need to know that. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I have the best answer here. The thing that I would accent is when there is a time of grieving. Of course, there are so many people. You think about the hundreds of thousands of people who have died now in the families that have experienced the loss of a loved one or multiple uh, family members in, so, in some cases, that even when they know that death is coming, when it does come, it always feels like a shock. There's something that death brings to a person's soul that even though they know it's coming, it feels like there was no preparation. And so there is a there is an environment of shock. And when you have something like an Oklahoma City bombing or 911 or other types of events like that, or I think even with a lot of people with COVID, that their soul is in shock. It's important, I think, in terms of ministry to own that and to recognize that this is not a time for even what I would call a lot of sermons. I think the scriptures are important, but I don't think it's an, I don't think it should be a time for us to, especially as pastors, to engage with our people in an intellectual side of the equation. I think it's important that we connect with them in terms of the grieving that their soul is experiencing. And in this case, the shock and the grieving and what has happened to our city and what does this mean and what's coming next and what were the implications for my future and for the future of my family, for my children. And so this constant thread of unanswered questions, the fact that something very tragic has taken place, that there's a lot of unanswered questions, People need to be able to process that. And I think that it's very critical that you understand that and that you give people the freedom to be able to ask the questions and talk and share their their thoughts and the the fact that there are so many unanswered questions and they're wondering about things that they people need to know that there's someone to that will listen to them. That was another uh, dynamic that I realized in what they call the family center. When something like this takes place in a city, FEMA comes in, the federal government comes in, and one of the things that they do is they set up a, a family center because you've got all these people who are now missing, and you don't really know what's going on. And they set up a family center, and all the families that are missing a loved one go to there, and, and it's highly secure uh, it's well guarded by the military and police, and that's where you'll sit and wait until you hear from the authorities the particulars in regards to where your father, mother, husband, uh, wife, etc., might are finding them. And so I eventually got involved in that, and that taught me a lot in regards to what it looks like for the community now, not just your lo- not just my church, but now other pastors and other churches to come together and to minister to these people that aren't asking for you to be there, where your congregation, your people are inviting you, but these people are strangers, and yet they don't have any option except to come into the center every day. And a lot of these people came in day after day, week after week, until... They were finally informed by the the federal government or their spokesperson 
that their loved one had been found. And literally after 24 hours of the bombing, any, any news was bad news. There was no like five or 10 day situation where somebody was found and they were found alive. Everybody that was discovered in the rubble was dead. And it went on for about three weeks. I got involved in that family center. So now I found myself not only ministering to my own people and taking them through uh, what it looks like to uh, respond to this kind of tragedy, but now I'm with strangers. And that was really a different experience. But in some ways, it was the same, meaning that when you sat down with people that you didn't know, but were willing to allow you into their lives, it was the same thing. It was a, it was a posture of silence. In many cases, you just sat with them. You didn't try to talk to them. You didn't try to share with them. You didn't try to, in many cases, even pray with them because they know if they're Christians or not. And again, they don't really know you. They just know that for some reason, the system allowed these pastors to be present and and they're there to help. But in time, you got to know these people. And in some cases, there was one young friend, he only spoke Spanish, and I didn't speak any Spanish, but he had his Bible with him. And on certain occasions throughout the next couple of weeks, as I would sit with the, with him and his, I think it was a uncle or it was a, it was a relative, and uh, we would communicate by reading, by turning to certain passages of Scripture. So you could do that with this, you could figure that out. And so you knew what he was reading, he knew what you were reading, but you didn't understand each other per se. And so there was some of that type of interaction. But for the most part, you had to be comfortable with just simply sitting there in silence for hours and allowing these people to grieve, but knowing that there were people who cared about them. And and that's what you were communicating. So I would say some of the important dynamics that with your own people, you want to guide them with the means of grace. You want them to engage in prayer, but it needs to be an opportunity for them just to cry out to the Lord or simply be silent. And other times to direct them with scripture in regards to places that might help. But I don't, I would say that, uh, and I would, there was like only one thing I would add or would leave you with and leave those that are listening to this podcast is that the best thing you can do is be quiet and silent and just be present and let them know that you're there, but you're not there because you've got all the messages and all the angles and all the reasons for what had happened. And somehow by your incredible logic and intellectual ability, you can take away the pain that they're experiencing. I've never been in pastoral ministry, but I imagine for a lot of pastors, the preaching, the encouraging, the sermonizing is part of how they work out their own response to things sometimes. Mm. One mm -hmm. pastor told me a couple months ago that he has come to realize that something like 75% of what he does is preach to himself in front of other people. Hmm. Uh, sure. Yeah. So in those first few days, how 
when you were realizing it's not the appropriate time for you to be preaching, how were you dealing with your own grief? How were you and your elders caring for others without shredding yourselves apart, both in the immediate Mm. days after the attack and when you realized that this was going to be a shadow over your ministry for a while? Yeah, and I would probably, in all fairness, say that I don't think we did a great job. I should say something else about Oklahoma and Oklahoma City, and that is, is that during the 20 years I was there, you know, there were any number of those years where we would have some really horrific tornadoes and the destruction from that. And I would say that brought us as a community in the same posture where we had an enormous amount of destruction and in some cases loss of life. And you were trying to figure out how to best minister. Now, in those cases, you don't have so quite almost the presence. In some ways, sorry, you almost in some ways had that rhythm of grief built into life there. Yeah. What do people think about when they think about Oklahoma, they think about the Dust Bowl, right? They think about parts of their history where those who have endured it over the years, they really have endured quite quite a bit. And so by the time we left, I would say, you know, there were any number of things that had happened that were pretty traumatic to people. But one of the things that FEMA requires is that when you become involved, like in my case, in the family center, they require you to go through regular debriefings. And I'll be honest with you, I wasn't terribly enamored with that, I thought. So this is a very secular thing, and I'm a believer, and I I have my own way of thinking about tragedy and suffering and how to go through it, and your model isn't necessarily going to be appreciated. But to be honest with you, I think that they were on to something, meaning that when your soul goes through a period of shock, you really do need to minister to yourself. And I and what I'm acknowledging is that I don't think I appreciated that. And after maybe three months of an environment where this is everything, this is what you wake up to, this is what you go through the day with, this is what you're reading in the newspaper, this is what's on television, in the news, and in other areas of the media. It's just constant. It's 24-7 only about the bombing, only about the suffering, only about the loss of life, etc. So after about maybe two or three months, and then it began to come to some kind of conclusion. They had found all the, the people who were buried in the rubble. The funerals had taken place. The gatherings had taken place. And then, in a sense, it was concluded with them imploding the rest of the building. But then I saw that maybe another month or so later that I definitely was going through some degree of depression. And I wouldn't say it was like serious depression or debilitating, but it nevertheless was there and you you could feel the weight that somehow your soul really hadn't recovered. And so I don't have, Rick, I don't have a great answer for that except to say that I do think that as a pastor, as elders, as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we need to take care of ourselves. What happens is you're so incredibly busy that it's difficult to really take a, a breath and to, to get out of it. And there were a lot of stories after the bombing in the six months and the year that followed of, of people 
going through divorces and having difficulty with relationships, etc. And I think uh, there was a lot of, there was significant consensus that that was a consequence of the bombing. So I would say there was a second wave of suffering experienced by not everyone, but by certainly some who have been in the midst of that that ministry and, and suffering and working with people. And in some cases, it was people who were involved in the rescue and other people who were perhaps involved in counseling. But the weight of things is so heavy and so long that it's difficult to go through all that without it having some kind of impact upon you. And I think most of us, you know, feel the same thing when we go through something more personal and as we're coming out of it, we realize that it's going to take us a while to uh, adjust and for our, our soul, our, our spirit to recover from uh, the suffering that's been experienced. And I think what you're thinking through and helping others think through is that as a country, are we going through a season of shock because of what we saw in regards to the Capitol? You said that you realized after counseling people through the bombing seemed to be over after the building was taken down, you noticed in yourself that you were dealing with some degree of depression. How did you survive that? What do you think you did well and what do you wish you had done? I'm not sure I did well. Um, I think that, first of all, I would say that I I certainly could have shepherded and cared for my own soul during that period in a better way. Now, there was a point in time earlier than the bombing. I spent time in South Africa that I just felt an enormous burden to get up in the morning and spend time in prayer. And it wasn't, there wasn't any particular structure. I don't want to imply that I had some kind of magical or very heavy spiritual way in which I did things, but I just uh, found that I needed that time to be quiet and still before the Lord. And I think that that pattern that had already been established served me well, and it buffered me in terms of what I was going through. And to be honest, I think to some degree, I don't care what you do and how you go through it, if you have uh, a significant season where you're working with people in a community that has gone through shock and suffering, it's, it is going to impact you. I don't, think, I don't think there's any way around it. In fact, I would say that if you do go through all that and you're like, well, oh, this didn't bother me at all, then there's a callus there that isn't healthy. In other words, you know, there's no way I can go into the presence of a young married couple that just lost a child. And within the ministry in Oklahoma City, I remember distinctly at times when I was with parents who had lost a child. You can't go into that without weeping with them and just pouring out your own soul because there is a tremendous amount of pain and you're going to feel it. And there's no way of insulating you and insulating you from that. And you don't want to be insulated. We're not called to, we're called to be incarnate. We're called to share in suffering as Christ shared in ours. And Jesus weeping is a very significant picture of what he went through. And he could have gone into that community and said, now look, by the way, I am the sovereign God. 
And there's nothing that happens in this world outside of my control. And not only that, but I know exactly what's going to take place because I'm the one who sovereignly planned it. And he could have gone on and talked about all kinds of wonderful theological things, which would have all been true. But just as you mentioned, in terms of the Incarnation, Jesus comes alongside these people who are suffering, and and he weeps with them. And you see that in multiple points within the Gospel, Jesus experiencing the pain of those that he has come to love and to save and to serve. And that whole dynamic of the suffering servant, uh, the suffering shepherd, is very prominent throughout the, the gospel. And even if you think about it in the Old Testament, uh, where God speaks about grieving, we, we see that both in the Old and New Testament. And so I guess my point is to say, I, I really wouldn't worry about somehow insulating yourself or somehow going through certain spiritual exercises that would enable you to get through these difficult times with your with a community or with your people in such a way that you can come out on the other end and say, oh, this didn't impact me. Everyone's different, but I would say that if you go through these things and you don't have some degree of depression, that somehow you've created some walls and issues that probably aren't very healthy. Your people need to see that, that you also uh, suffer through these things. All right, that was my interview with Pastor Chuck Garriott. A lot of us have spent more time than usual cooped up alone or with less chances than usual to interact with other people for most of the past year. We've seen the world and we've interacted with other people through social media way more lately than we ever have before. And we're realizing it's really, really easy when we have strong reactions to something to go to Facebook to vent our anger or our frustration, to post a rant or to reshare the angriest meme we can find. And it's easy to go on Twitter and retweet a hashtag that's associated with whatever action we want Congress to take right now. It's easy to vent, and it's easy to feel like we have a right to vent, or maybe even an obligation to vent if it's going to put pressure on our elected officials to, in our point of view, do their job. But if we are people of faith, and especially if we are people of faith who are in some kind of leadership position, it is essential that we also make time to grieve, to exercise our own lamentation muscles, but also to let others know that we are listening to their grief. It's essential that we do this because Jesus listened to our grief. I like making sure people leave these episodes with some kind of either encouragement or challenge or to-do But I think the most important call to action here off of this conversation, the call to action that I know I need to be reminded of most, is to use this opportunity to practice lament and grief. I'm going to give a brief reading from Job chapter 2, verses 11 to 13, then I'll lead us in prayer. And Job's three companions heard of all this harm that had come upon him, and they came, each from his place, 
Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. And they agreed to meet, to grieve with him, and to comfort him. And they lifted up their eyes from afar, and did not recognize him. And they lifted up their voices, and wept. And each tore his garment, and they tossed dust on their heads toward the heavens. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and none spoke a word to him, for they saw that the pain was very great. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this reminder that Job's friends didn't do anything wrong until they started trying to explain his grief, rationalize it away, or tell him why he walked into it himself. Thank you for giving, when you came into this world, giving us the comfort of knowing that the God of the universe took the form of the greater Eliphaz, the greater Bildad, the greater Zophar, that the God of the universe, when he entered this world and saw the grief that we actually did bring on ourselves, didn't start trying to explain it away to us, didn't start trying to rationalize it or moralize it, but went silently like a sheep to the slaughter, to take that grief on and sympathize with it. Help us to not hide the grief we're experiencing now from you, because you actually came here to experience it, to see it, and to know it. Help everyone who's listening to this, everyone who's praying with me, and everyone in our communities of faith, everyone in our gatherings of the body of Christ, to not rage alone but to know that we can rage in prayer, that we can grieve in prayer, that we can lament in prayer. Knit our hearts closer to you in our grief and keep us close to you when joy comes in the morning. In the name of the Son you sent to be close to our rage and our grief and our despair. Amen. That's it for this episode. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, where we'll be posting more encouragement, more devotional content, as well as more videos over the next few months. We're at Christian Civics at each of those outlets. Our social media is coming from Abigail Carlson, who joined our team in the fall, and we're extraordinarily grateful that she's here. If you want to learn more about Ministry to State, you can visit their website at ministrytostate.org, where you can also sign up for their newsletter or subscribe to their podcast. And until we are back with you, thank you so much for being part of this work empowering the church across the political spectrum.